Father, You have chosen us in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. You have called each of us to Yourself by Your Holy Spirit. You have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have gathered us together today to bless us, to give us the gifts of Your kingdom, life, wisdom, and glory. You promised to meet us here in this time and place to receive our praise and our thanksgiving as we seek to give You honor and glory. Indeed, Lord, we do declare Your greatness. May the whole earth resound with Your praises. May Your kingdom stretch from the river to the ends of the earth. May all the nations and all the kings of the earth bow before Your throne and acknowledge Your supremacy. O Father, the merciful God who shows us mercy, we praise You for sending us Your Son, our Savior, the Incarnate One, For through His death and resurrection, we have the forgiveness of our sins. He is the desire of nations, the great physician of our souls, the friend of sinners, the King and Redeemer of all creation. O Father, we praise You for sending forth Your Spirit through Your Son. Your Spirit, the One who renews us, who works faith in us, who grants us repentance, the One who bears fruit in our lives that is pleasing to You and brings You glory. O Spirit of the living God, who hovered over the waters of the creation in the beginning, form us now into Your new creation. Fill us with the radiant light of Your truth and love. Help us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Equip us to do works of love and mercy in the world. O Father, Son, and Spirit, One God, existing eternally in three persons, to whom all glory and honor are due, world without end. You whom the angels praise, crying out continually, holy, holy, holy. You whose glory fills the whole creation. To you, O triune God, be all wisdom, dominion, praise, adoration, and sovereignty. Amen. The lesson of the day today comes to us from 1 Samuel 14, chapter 14, verse 1 to 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over onto the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the other side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz and the name of the other, Senah. The one crag rose on the north in the, in the front of Michmash, and the other on the south in the front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the man and we will, we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, 
come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the man of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within as it were half a furrow's length in acre of land, and there was panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people, and the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of, of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistine increased more and more. And so, so, and so Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were there with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. And now the Hebrews who had been in the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. The word of the Lord. So I just noticed I need to pray first. Okay. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us, and we ask that you would give your Holy Spirit so that everything that I say would be not wisdom of man, but it would be word coming up from heaven. Please illuminate our hearts, our minds, so that we may be hearers and doers of your word. Amen. So before I begin, I would like to extend the, the greetings from the church in Dios, in Hungary. Those of you who are in the uh, morning Sunday class, I was able to explain just a little bit about the vision that we, and the, the work that we're doing, but know this, that all of us think of you fondly, and it is to us so encouraging to know that there are so many brothers and sisters all throughout the world, and especially here too, that, that likewise think of us. So thank you for your prayers, and thank you for your thoughts, uh, and, and your support to us. Today's uh, sermon, I would like to teach about this uh, lesson that I read to you, quite a long one. And I would like to begin by saying that oftentimes, when we are overwhelmed by great and unsurmountable odds, we can feel like we are debilitated, we can become idle, we can sometimes resort to rash decisions, and 
these seem to be good at the time, but overall it can be still disobedience to God. And this can lead to judgment, and it will lead to judgment. God, God calls us individually to be faithful to Him and to be patient. But at the same time, we need not lose sight of the greatest calling, which is to take dominion of this world, to build God's kingdom on earth, to bring glory to His name. And in my message today, what I would like to teach about is expounding upon God's word as it is given to us in the book of Samuel and the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. So the way this will look like is I want to first give you the historic context of the passage and then see what the battle looked like and then how this applies to our life today and how this applies to the life of the church today. Now the context of this message that I told you, if you know the whole story, is that there was a long dragged out war between the Hebrews and the Philistines. This has lasted for a long time. And Saul was the king of Israel at that, at that time. And Samuel was the last judge and he was the spiritual leader of Israel. And Saul was putting his troops at Migron and the Philistines at Michmash. And they were opposing each other but they weren't engaging in this particular fight. Now, let's look at first the Hebrews, and then we will look at the Philistines. What characterized the Hebrew army? Well, the first thing that we know is that the Hebrews were greatly outmanned and outgone in many ways. In chapters 11, verse 8, we see that the Hebrew army was about 230,000 that actually fought. In chapter 13, 2, we see it's only 3,000. 13, 15, it's only 600. In this passage there were only two men fighting, Jonathan and his armor bearer. But what we'll see is in chapter 15, verse 4, it will go up to 210,000 again. So that's one thing. Um, in history, we know that in fighting, it is important uh, to have numbers, and as we can see, numbers were greatly against the Hebrews. They only had very few weapons. In chapter 13, verse 19, we read this, that the Philistines had all the blacksmiths and the Jews had to take their weapons, their well, not their weapons, but well, if they had any, but they had to take their hoes and all their instruments to the Philistine blacksmiths to be sharpened. And we also read that only Saul and Jonathan, they were the only two people who had swords. Now, before I go on to the late application, I can't stand not to apply this to our life today. Because yesterday I was in a fascinating adventure. I was taken by uh, Reverend uh, Jimmy Gill shooting. Now, this is important because, um, and I may be, of course, then preaching to the choir here, but uh, any regime that seeks to control another's guns or means of defense is an oppressive one. For instance, in Hungary, uh, if you own more than three rounds of ammunition, it's up to eight years in prison. That's actually um, more than what you would get if someone beat a pregnant, pregnant woman and she would lose her child. There's only three rounds of ammunition. So yesterday we fired like 150. I think uh, I would still be in jail for a long time. Uh, were we in Hungary? But all this, just a quick side application, never let the Philistines take your guns away. You know, you have it, you may not see how great that blessing is and how starved we are on the other side of the world to this. But we see that the, the Philistines had the weapons, they had control of the weapons, 
and the, the Hebrews had no means of defending themselves. But there was also another problem, and that was of spiritual decline. Um, we, we read that Saul makes a three, or does a threefold sin. He already, by this time, in uh, chapter 14, Saul had already sinned against God the Father by being impatient and offering a sacrifice before Samuel could do this, so before he gets there. And he also rebels against Samuel, his spiritual father, by tearing his garment. So he rebels against the authority. And this, this, this actually calls for another quick pit stop here, for another application, which is, I read nowadays that there's a tendency out there which, which says that the mo most important thi thing for us Christians is that we need to be obedient to God, and this obedience is only judicial and ethical. That all we need to do is just obey and live by God's law, and if we only did that, nothing else matters. And how we worship doesn't matter. I was, to me, it is such an amazing thing to see this wonderful congregation, the singing, the instruments, the robes, and how you all seriously take uh, importance in how you worship, it matters to God. It mattered to God who offered the sacrifices. So how we obey is important. God cares about this as well as other aspects of the law. So this is important because we can't just stress, well, we just need to be important to some ethical requirements, but worship and how we do all, the, all those things is not important. It, it's important for God. So we see that Saul uh, disobeyed, and what, what is worse isn't so much the disobedience, but that he did not repent. He did not confess. He did not have a humble and contrite heart as we today prayed at the confession. But he lashes out against Samuel. And that's something which we must never do. He will then, not only will he sin against the father, he will next sin against the son by punishing and almost killing his son Jonathan, um, uh, later on, by, by putting on a curse on the whole army. And then finally, he will, he will sin against the Holy Spirit by taking plunder from the king of Agag, who he should have killed. So, not only is the Hebrew army out, outmanned, outgunned, they also don't have the, the, the spiritual strength or the morale to fight. And so, as a result of this, what we read is that, where are the Hebrews? They hide in caves, pits, Holes. Another translation says it's tombs, which is a, a it's a symbolic view of spiritual death. These people were afraid; they they had no hope, and what was worse, nothing was going for them. They trusted in Saul's great numbers, and when the numbers were low, they feared men. They feared men. Now let's look at the Philistine army, which was opposing the Hebrews uh, in First uh, Samuel. Uh, chapter 13, verse 5, we see that they had 30,000 chariots. That is a very powerful army. They had 6,000 cavalry. And the way Scripture describes them is, I quote, like sand in the seashore in the multitude, end of quote, which is, of course, a promise given to who? It's given to Abraham that he will multiply them. And so what we see is that the pagans are the ones who seem to be, be having God's favor. They have the guns, they have the numbers, they have the blessing from God. And so it is in this context that Jonathan says something. 
And he says something in that he not only says it, but he does something strange. He is an exact opposite of King Saul. We see that what Saul is doing is he's waiting at a tree, uh, under a tree in Migron. And Jonathan, on the other hand, he is a different person than Saul. Saul already is discredited himself and he will further do that. But we see Jonathan in a different light. First of all, Jonathan has a vision of victory. Jonathan has a vision of victory. He initiates. He takes risks. He trusts in God and he doesn't trust in numbers. He's also obedient because he's willing to turn back if God is not going to give him a sign. So Jonathan is ready to go out there. He's ready to beat the Philistines. And so he goes towards this garrison. Now the garrison, as we see, was located to the east of the Hebrew camp. And there might be a typological significance of this, that the east of the garden was the land and the world. Jonathan, in this way, was ready to take on these pagans. He was ready to conquer them, to bring it under God's lordship and his sovereignty. But in order to get there, they had to go down a gorge, and then they had to climb up a gorge. And typologically, this could be a symbol of death and resurrection. They had to crawl on all, on all fours to ascend, like going up on a ladder. And the Philistines were mocking them. They were making fun of them. And they said, that, you know, come up and we'll show you a thing. But we also, and what they're saying is, ha, huh, look at this. The Hebrews, the losers, are coming out of their caves. And so this, is, uh, this was one problem. But the, the second thing was, strategically, Jonathan had everything working against him. Um, he was not in a good place to fight. Because if you know anything about military strategy, there might be some soldiers here, you know, especially in the world where you had no drones and rocket launchers and those kind of things, that to shoot up is always more difficult than to shoot down. And the Philistines were located up, and Jonathan and his armor bearer were down. That's one thing that doesn't work with them. So when you have the law of gravity against you, that's a problem. The second thing is, of course, that they were outnumbered because uh, they were outnumbered one to ten. Now, this is interesting because and a minor application in history is that we should see this oftentimes, especially recently in the past week and a, week and a half, I was uh, told to speak about how you know, the history of Hungary. And this was exactly where Eastern Europe was almost all the time when the Mongolians came to attack Eastern Europe and had they not been stopped, they would have gone to the West. When the Ottoman Empire marched against Europe, most of the time, the Hungarian and other Christian forces were outnumbered one to 10. I mean, you had at the siege of Vienna, hundreds of thousands of uh, Turkish auxiliary and main forces facing just a handful of defenders. So what we see that in the midst of all of this, Jonathan asks God, he trusts God, he trusts that God can bring about victory because for him, he says, it's just as easy to win with few as it is easy to win with many. And God gives him the green light. He says, go. And the result is a great victory. 
we see a great victory there, but there is more. Not only do they win this skirmish, but we see that the ground trembles and there's a great confusion among God's enemies in the main camp. And what do they do? They start killing each other. Which, of course, when the ground trembles and such, mag such magnificent things take place, reminds us later on of what will happen at Pentecost. Now, this is the story. This is the historical uh, context. And this is something that we need to now apply in our lives today. So we should do this. Well, first, first of all, I would say that an individual application would be, is this. Be Jonathan's, do not be Saul's. That could be one very simple way of, sitting, uh, of stating this. In our own lives, we have Philistine armies facing us. We have problems of our own sinfulness. This could be problems at home, could be problems at work, problems at school, it could be problems with the economy whatsoever. In Eastern Europe, for instance, one of the problems that we see is there is a great immaturity and irresponsibility with the family. You know, that's one problem on an individual level, on a family level. Young men are idle, husbands not leading their families. These are all challenges that we face. And sometimes it seems that everything is working against us, like the board that they had to go up on, like strategically that the garrison was on top, that they were outnumbered, that they had no weapons. That's one problem. And we might sometimes feel just like the Hebrews did against the Philistines. We may sometimes cower back into our little caves and tombs, and we may lick our wounds and cry out like one of my favorite characters from Star Wars, C-3PO, we're doomed. He always says this. You know, and, and we can hold on to that defeatist view that, oh, we'll just hold on until the rapture. And so when we are in a situation like this, the temptation for all of us is to be like Saul, to make the same mistakes that he does. One thing that Saul does is that he cracks in the face of challenge. He is impatient. He is impatient. He doesn't like to wait uh, for God's deliverance. That's one of his problems. But then, not only does he do that, then where do we see him next? When there is the big fight, he's under an apple tree at Migron waiting. But he's idle. He's not doing anything. He was doing something that he was not supposed to, and when he was supposed to, he was not doing anything. So he's idle. You know, this is something that could be true in our own lives, too. You know, as I talked about how one of the problems in, at least in Eastern Europe, I'm sure you don't have this, that of irresponsibility and immaturity within the family. Young men, for instance, not taking the risk, engaging. They, they want to sit idle until the girls come to them. They want to sit around for a great job um, to come instead of taking a risk and working at an authentic Italian pizza place like Pizza Hut. You know, that's something which, is, which people need to do, but they don't. They're idle. They want to wait. Well, I don't want to take risks. No, it's just so, I'll just stay at this apple tree. And that's one thing that we see. That's the second thing that Saul does. And Saul is a picture of our old nature, our sinful nature. He is like Adam, who was chosen to be a king. You were all chosen to be kings. I was, we're all, God's people are chosen to be kings. But Saul was also chosen to be one, but he rebels. 
He rebels and he's idle and he doesn't trust in God. He is disobedient, irresponsible and lazy. That's the temptation that we all have when we face problems like this. Rather, what we should do is be like Jonathan. And let's see what he did. Well, the first thing that we see that he does is that he is faithful in the difficult times. He's faithful to God. The things of God matter to him. It matters to him what's happening to the main army. We also see that Jonathan was anything but idle. He said, come, let's go up to the Philistines and destroy them. He takes a risk for God. He takes a risk for God. He's willing to sacrifice himself for a greater cause. He said, that's more important than my safety here. And God raises him up and gives him the victory. But Jonathan does not know that until he takes that risk. And that he does. And I, I think that Jonathan is a foreshadow of Christ. He's a second Adam, the faithful son, through his death and resurrection, gains victory. And because we are in Christ, because you are in Christ, whatever the circumstance that you might be in, whether it's seeking for a new job, whether, whether it's things going on at home with your family or with your church, if you are willing to take a risk for God, if you're willing to obey Him, God will give you victory. It, it won't be easy. Uh, Jonathan had to fight. There was work involved in this. But God is, um, is, is promising us, I think, in this story that, that he, will, he will be with us and He will strengthen us. So that's the individual application. But how does this apply to us as a church? I think that if you could take it this way, Saul's camp, the camp of King Saul, could be a picture of mainstream of the mainstream or the official church. They are God's people. And, and what, what characterizes this mainstream church then? And I think this is something at least that characterizes the mainstream churches in Hungary. They have no vision. They dwell in caves. They're saying we're doomed. There, there is nothing uh, that, that, that would see that they have any uh, vision for the future. There's a lack of trust lack of faithfulness within them and they're idle they don't attack they sit around the tree and wait and see oh what's happening there there's a great um, shape they're waiting for a miracle to happen or maybe not even that and so I think that this really characterizes the church in Eastern Europe where I where I'm from um, in Hungary the, you have two major groups of churches one are the traditional churches which would be the uh, Roman Catholic, the Lutheran, and the Reformed churches. All of these churches, without exception, depend on the state for financing. They're paid for, their ministers are paid for by the state. And, because of this, they, are, they don't proclaim God's law against the state. The biggest and the most wicked of all idols, at least in Eastern Europe, but I see some of this here too, is the belief that the state is God. Statism. And when the church is a kept man of the state, how can be it expected that some people, that the church would then speak prophetically? Samuel spoke out prophetically against King Saul. He did the right thing 
and he was not afraid of man. But the traditional churches, at least in Hungary, this is something that's happening. Rather than trusting God's law, these churches, they bring their swords willingly to the state. Let the state sharpen their swords. And what this means is that in issues of education, politics, you know, rampant nationalism, economics, confiscatory taxation, you know, I was just uh, telling people here that the average tax burden on a Hungarian uh, worker is about 70% with everything included. You have a 27% sales tax. And the church is silent. They don't say a word against this. By the way, it now was reduced to 53. That is the uh, only half of what we make is taken away. But in retirement, there is, you know, it's interesting even in, in, the, in the whole question of how are parents revered? How are they honored? I've seen this many times in America when I come here, when somebody becomes retired, you know, they say, oh, I'm retired, I'm going to go on a cruise to Alaska, or I'll do this, or, but may, maybe even, if not as much as this, but it, it is a position when a person is able to relax and enjoy the, the fruit of his hand. It is, a, it is a step upwards. In Eastern Europe, being retired means you're dead. I mean, that, that, that's, fin you know, you're finished. And it's a slide down. In the healthcare, we have rampant corruption, corruption, bribery. Not so that the not so that you would get a better treatment. You bribe so you won't be maltreated. You pay, you pay the doctor. Can I? Can you please not operate me so I will suffer for the rest of my life? When you have child delivery, the doctors would ask, you know, do you need? Uh, uh, would you like your son to have a birth defect? So you pay. Right? That's what we have in our health care. And the church is silent because they are cat man of the state. There is no freedom of speech, truly, because by definition they make such laws that everybody is guilty. Now, they won't apprehend you, but if you speak too loudly about something, there's always a way to have you put to jail. So, with all of this happening in Eastern Europe, sometimes cleverly done so that the West doesn't see it, why isn't the church saying anything? Because they depend on the state. And because the churches, the traditional ones, do not have their own backyards in order. For instance, church discipline doesn't exist. There is absolutely nobody is ever called on by pastor for not coming to church or for committing adultery in a serial way None of that matters. There's no church discipline. If there's no church discipline, how can the church then go out and, and uh, rebuke the state? So then you would think, well, now the great hope is for the evangelical churches. Surely they have their things in order, but no. They, they, they have another part of this. They have completely abandoned God's law. I mean, when I say how important it is the only, only hope we could have is to reorganize our own life and to apply God's law in all other areas of life. People think I'm a heretic. I'm a fool. And then when I would say, because we have victory in Jesus, they would say, come on, you're just holding back the rapture. You know, that's what we need to do. We just need to hold on. The rapture is going to happen. Jesus, Jesus is going to jettison out, us out from here. And that will be the end of this. 
Dispensational premillennialism is one of the biggest curses that ever hit Eastern Europe after 1989. In 1989, most of Eastern Europe, the doors were open, people flocked to Christ. They flocked to him. They sought answers. But the only answer they ever got was, you know, don't worry about any of those problems in your job. Don't worry about your other problems. Just hold on to the rapture and pray. That idea of defeatism, escapism, just was oil on fire on the already existing problems of immaturity and irresponsibility. And the evangelicals haven't made this matter any better. They are not the ones who um, give answers on God's law. So, what is, that's what we see in the traditional churches, that's what we see, that's what we see in the evangelical churches. Is that it? Well, that would be a hopeless message if I were to just leave it at that. Because it's not, because God is sending Jonathans. God is sending Jonathans in Eastern Europe, for sure, in Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Ukraine, and I see here in the U.S. and Canada too, our churches in the CREC are challenging the, the, the idols of communism and statism, statism. It may be that we're the only ones, you know, bearing the swords and going at the garrison, but at least there is something that's happening. And it doesn't take great numbers for God to have victory. We're bringing in a renewed interest in Reformed theology. We're teaching faithfully how God's law is applicable to every aspect of life, from art to economics to politics to worship to everything, must be surrendered to the sovereignty of God's word. We're also teaching our congregations in Hungary uh, about homeschooling and the importance of not surrendering, surrendering their children to the state for brainwashing. We need to be faithful to God, and we do this by listening to Him of how He wants us to worship Him. We re rediscover the beauty of worship. Yes, there are many people who mock us. There are many people um, who um, personally would attack and say, Attila, you are just a fool. This is never going to work. But we are building an alternative society like the Puritans. And it may not be in our lifetime, but it, who knows what God is going to do. And so I think what is important is that we see that the main camp, the main church is still at Migron. They're still waiting for the miracle to happen. They're still waiting for the ticket out. They're still consumed with inner uh, spirituality. But what we... And, but, and the problem is that one, if I were to ask, so who is the who's the greatest enemy that you have in Hungary? I would say, oftentimes, it's the church. The church that is sitting at the apple tree in Migron saying, why are you even doing this? Why are you working towards this? Don't you know that we need to just get out of here? Forget God's law. That's just being judgmental. You don't need to do this. We'll just go to the state. We'll look at, uh, read some good psychology books together and hold it out until it's all finished. That is a problem, but we're challenging this because God is sending Jonathans. I am a Jonathan, and you all are Jonathans as well. You are doing something different. You're building an alternative society here in America. I, you know, I was uh, before I came here. I was visiting Pastor Strawbridge's church in Pennsylvania, Amish country, 
And even though, I mean, the Amish do not have it right in many, many, many levels, but their theology, the way they um, re uh, refuse themselves or separate themselves from the world, the concept is still there of building something different. So they, and, and so in, in that way, that's what we're doing. We're not Amish, but we are building a different society within society. We're being faithful to God. You're being faithful to God. And so what is important is um, we are the ones who refuse, down, uh, who refuse to bow down to, refeat, to defeat. We don't believe that we'll be raptured out here. We refuse to stay idle. If you would be idle, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have invited me. Um, it is something that we're doing. We're working towards missions. We refuse to send our children to the public schools. We're the ones who refuse to believe that God gave this world to the unbelievers so that they could multiply as the shore, as the sand of the shore. We know that God gives this world to us and that we need to take dominion. And so because of this, we as a church, we need to be faithful. We need to be like Jonathan. That means taking risks. Taking risks. Step, stepping out of our comfort zone. We need to die for ourselves so that we may be raised up to, be God's, uh, to defeat God's enemies. And I think the important thing is if we become like Jonathan, if the church is woken up from her slumber at Migron and under the apple tree, God will give us the victory. He gave, us, he gave them the victory then, but it all started with Jonathan taking a risk, stepping out for God, and making a difference. And he will give the victory to you, both individually and as a church, so that we may take possession of the land and become successful in building God's kingdom on earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are an almighty God and that you have given this world to us as an inheritance. We thank you for your goodness towards us and we thank you that you forgive us even though sometimes we respond to you like King Saul had done. We pray that you would enable us to be like Jonathan's. Help us to be able to take risks for you that we may step out of our comfort zones to be faithful to you and to trust you and not to be idle. We ask that you would bless us and please enable us not to be only hearers of your word, but doers also. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.